Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you're listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. And on the show today, Richard Su. Uh, Richard's focus is mindful cultural strategy and content development for humanistic, balanced cities. He's trained and worked in art, in design, culture, brands, retail, city planning and development, and education and social good. So he's tirelessly redesigning systems and connecting dots. Sometimes the dots are visible, sometimes not. So welcome to my podcast, Richard. Very happy to be here. So I'm so grateful that our paths have crossed, actually, thanks to Marcus Lechtel and Eda, who has introduced us. And um, I would like to kick off uh, by asking about your life that is actually, at this point in time, divided perfectly between half in the West and half in the East. And I know that you were uh, born in Shanghai, you spent your teenage years in, in, in Paris and in Luxembourg, and professionally you're trained in New York, in Japan, China and in Southeast Asia. So it's a unique combination, and I bet the, the world is, is really getting so much value and, and so many pearls from you exactly because you have this background. So I'm curious, how much of this half-and-half half life that you've had, so to say, in East and West just happened, so to say, with like a flow of life? And how much was it actually kind of designed by you? It's a very easy answer, entirely unplanned a few years ago, it was reasonably easy answer. I spent the first 10 years in China and Hong Kong, and then the next set of 10 years in Europe, and the following 10, 13 years in New York, and then about 11 years in, in Southeast Asia and Japan, and then China. But it's really sets of 10 years, and it makes you really love all the places. There's not one place that uh, I do not want to go back to. And um, you just really learn to appreciate every corner. And you also learn to not say, I miss this part of the world or not, because I know I'm going to get it again when I visit there. But I also have a great memory and a sense of those places. So it's unplotted, it's unplotted, it's unplanned. But um, I'm just really blessed that I've had this journey of. Um, geographic journey, and also professional journey. I know that you are and have worked as a design researcher and practitioner, and you've also been lectured a lot in different uh, schools and universities, like, for example, the School of Design and of Innovation at Tongji University, and also at Straka University in Moscow, Yale, Columbia University, of the, of the Graduate School of Architecture, and also HDK Berlin, and, and many, many other institutions. So there's a lot of um, education, university kind of connection for you as well with your uh, track record. And I guess it's also one way of, of you kind of paying things forward with all the experience and, and uh, knowledge that you have. But I'm also intrigued uh, by the fact that uh, back in 2009, you were the one introducing TED and TEDx conferences to China and also to build communities and uh, different uh, co-learning programs uh, across China. So tell us about that experience. A big part of it started probably the late 1990s. I work for a few Japanese clients um, across Japan and Southeast Asia. 
And a lot of these places, I had a very short time to learn the country. So something I learned in the 80s in New York, people set up these great weekly salons when people meet and share ideas. And I never practiced it in New York. So when I arrived in Southeast Asia and Japan, when I was in a position when I really needed to understand the cities, the, the businesses, and, and connect to the right people, I start um, staging salons and caterings. And very often it's always been the opposites, uh, the locals and the foreigners, the business and the creative, the elders and the, and the youth. And the conversation has always been incredible. And so when TEDx was started out around 2009, and I believe there were 20, 30 cities around the world that they prototype the TEDx concept. TEDx Shanghai was, uh, was one of them, and, and we were the first to do it in China. And because we thought that was quite a turning point in China, because prior to that, the idea of co-working space, co-learning, collaborative innovation, a lot of these things did not exist. Before that, it was just really fun socializing. People went to bar. That was really the scene in Shanghai. But around 2009, that was really the shift. We start seeing people really coming together to go for this public learning, public platforms. And I think TED was TED and TEDx was really one of um, the early sort of explosion of that. In the short couple of years, we had 135 TEDx across China. We had some village ones, we had high schools, we had international schools, we had cities. It was really one of my life-changing experience. It's a combination of knowledge, it's a combination of humanism, because it is not in the definition of TED, but humanism is such an important part of TED Talks, is, is how do you, in a very humanistic way, looking at science, looking at an idea. And it also triggers so many of us that were the first flow and first group of um, curators that we become just uh, super curious and addictive learning creatures. So, and, and also saying the fact that we are able to present a lot of ideas, a lot of people, a lot of brilliance. How do we connect the dots? How do we find a way to not just talk, but find ways to turn the talks into action? Richard, you're also working with projects related to international brand building and brand management, you know, with brands like uh, you told me about New York Times and Nike, Adidas, uh, and many others. What have you learned from this experience with these brands? I returned to China around 2002, 2003. I set up an advertising agency called Wyden Kennedy, and it is the agency for Nike. And I guess our mandate was get the brand Nike ready for 2008 Beijing Olympics. And that was my really my entry task. And um, it was a great way to go back to Shanghai and really discover the incredible in-depth underground and above-ground creative talents in both Shanghai, Beijing, Shenzhen, Guangzhou. And you really can feel the energy was incredibly alive at that time. And my background has been in culture, museums, uh, advertising, communication, and retail. When we look at all these different sectors in China, 
I think what we can share is um, the permission China gives you to create. It's really open. It's really great. And I do remember in Southeast Asia, in Japan, in the 1990s, was almost equivalent. You know, if you have an idea, you can just go with it. The companies, the the city government, they really want to see it. They really want to try. And、um, I think this energy is really strong in China for the last ten years. And I do not see this actually dimming down. I think with COVID for the last few years, we can even see more people are hungry for great ideas because、um, I think at certain hardship times, a lot of things that are average will filter out. Really great ideas will shine, and also very poor ideas will also exist because of price point, because of simplicity of ideas. So I call this second life for a lot of international brands, international ideas, because the same idea in the West may have lost steam, may have been sort of taken for granted because we know the brand, we know the story, and they don't need to tell it anymore. But for you to enter into China, into a big market, into a few great cities, first, second, third tier cities, you can really reinvent your story. Or tell it in the way that you want to, in the right sequence, in the right method. So I really call this second life for international thinking, international brands. And as you said, can you introduce me? You know, the idea of connecting dots is how do we find the idea of public storytelling to public education to how would a brand, if they have an opportunity of something like TED. How would they come out and introduce themselves? Not in a commercial way, but what is the purpose? What is the intent of the brand? And if we're able to search, to scratch deep with the owner of the brands, I think it's it's a great experience for them, and also for the customer that will later on be touched by the company, by the product, by the brand. What are the how can I say typical maybe misconceptions of brands from the West wanting to get into China? What do you find typically that they misunderstood? Maybe not necessarily misunderstood, but they are not scratching and listening to the people deep enough. And、um, I think I mentioned to you in one of the bypassing conversation a few weeks ago that、um, a few years ago we were given. I was given the task of、uh, rethinking what is sort of the future of retail looks like. So we build a shopping center. We rebuild the building that is six stories high, two hundred fifty thousand square feet, and we want to rethink shopping experience. We want to rethink brand experience, and we just turn everything upside down. And we were scared since day one. Is this crazy idea of ours going to survive? But we opened in January 2020, welcoming COVID <laughs> to 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 our lives. But China with COVID was closed and open. But we had people around the block three days a week, and because the idea of something like this is really don't do what everybody else does. I think I'm in a position that I. Really don't want to repeat what one thousand neighbors are doing. I want to see what can we offer to different age groups. Very clearly understanding what is missing in their life, 
what are they curious about, and what are also their spending habits. One of the big advantages is that China youth has more money than almost any youth in the world. Why is that? Few parts. I think the entrepreneurship in Chinese people is quite alive. So a lot of young people at a young age, they know how to do social media. They know how to find a way to make money. And the other part is that because of the one-child policy of China for twenty, thirty years, a lot of children are single child. So they get pampered. They get、uh, really well taken care of. It's spoiled by three sets of elders: your parents, your maternal grandparents, and your paternal grandparents. So. They will have、um, a few decades of good life because they get six different incomes. People pour in money, but this is the next problem. When they reach sixty, fifty, sixty, they have to take care of six people and not their own family alone. So that will be a hardship that we will see from from the young people. But right now, from the young people, they are entitled. They are entirely optimistic. So we build this this center, just really offering some of the best ideas we can find globally into one place. And because COVID has made Chinese not be able to travel, so many of the Shanghai people, young people, or different age people, they came to this place to see the new ideas of the world. So this idea, this place, has grown with such reputation that many cities want us to build it. So this year, May, June, we're going to open the next center in Beijing, and we have been even more daring with that space, with that idea. What are those、uh, new, unique ideas that you introduced into that that are not only just let's be different, but as you say, how can we make this more meaningful? What are those ideas? It's a combination of I would just say our buzzword, the way that we work with our team, our marketing team, our development team is we realize there are four things that were very strong in the global zeitgeist of marketing and youth and、uh, retail. D O U X is a French word means sweet, soft, digital, oasis, urban, and collaboration. Digital because we are really entering the digital age. So if we can bring the best of digital thinking into a space, so we have taken a lot of the walls, a lot of the windows, and made the biggest LED screens and presentations with art and digital presentation. Oh, for Oasis, we have brought in as much as possible green park, so that in the middle of a city, people can enjoy all these things with green around them, and to try to be as sustainable as we can. You for urban is really understanding urban beats, the energy, the social media, so everything that really makes China at any single given moment tick. So we have dozens and dozens of KOL, opinion leaders, young people, eighteen to twenty-five, that has five, ten, twenty million followers that is collaborating with us. So the message goes out in a very, very big way. Their feedback, what they like and what they don't like about our offerings, and the last one is collaboration. Collaboration is right now the buzzword, the big word in anything: museums, culture, education, brands, and brands and brands. Everybody collaborate. So we want to find what I call really radical ways of really great, extraordinary collaboration. 
collaboration that's not expected. So we bring artists along with brands, we bring scientists along with brands. So this becomes almost a platform of just a lot of creativity, a lot of ideas, a lot of China bests, global bests, all within a space. And the last thing is we have 250,000 square feet of space, 25,000 square meter of space. We, from early on, we said 25 to 30% of the space will be for pop-up. We don't set up, we don't lock it up to any brands so that we have continuous flow of ideas, of people presenting ideas, artwork being presented, brands presenting the new face, the new product. So the number of promotions we do on a weekly level is in the hundreds. So it's that kind of energy. So later on, we pinpoint this, this, this became what we call youth energy center. And that's a little bit, um, the development of this rethinking of the future of commercial real estate and the future of retail experience could be like. Interesting. I'm also curious about the brands that you actually consciously pick and the influencer voices that you actually collaborate with. How do you pick those that stand for the right thing so that you can also influence the consumers in that space to reflect and think about important things? Yeah, my partner in this have cornered a word. English was not his first language and uh, he just suddenly realized how powerful is the word curation. So very much this project is based on curation and who are the people that are curated. Both of us are in their 50s and 60s. And how do we curate for young people? So no decisions come from us. We have a group of really young people working with us that are in their 20s that really have what we call ears to the ground. They know what is the market. And we do very deep research in Japan and in Los Angeles. Those are the two centers of the world where the newest, freshest ideas come from. Technology, how do we look at San Francisco? How do we look at Beijing? How do we look at Shenzhen? So there are a couple of ways that we are constantly learning, constantly gathering. And it's, it's something that I, I enter retail in the late 1970s, early 80s in New York. And we are saying the best retail are the ones that are offering the best of themselves or the best of what they know to the public. So what we do very consciously that what we learn, if we find it valuable, we turn around and offer it to the public with a context. And we use the KOL to actually explain what they are, explain how it could be used and why is it relevant to China or to Asia. This sensitivity between East and West, does it influence your work? Uh, also, given the backdrop that you've been spending, you know, half of your time in the West and half in the East with this fantastic combination. But does it influence your work? Do you feel sometimes even hindered? No, and probably at this point, not at all, because I've been sensitive for many years about cross-border relationship, about Southeast Asia, about all the various different countries that are very close to each other, and also the East-West relationship. And with the geopolitics nowadays, with the sort of new coldness between countries, between East and West, the Europeans and the Western countries speaking to me or working together with us are the ones that are truly needing and appreciating Asia. And Asian parties, companies, and, and city governments in China that are working with me, they realize they are 
in somehow the hands sort of tied to be not too Western prone, but they know they know that they need Western thinking and content. So I'm in a good position to be able to do this because I've never entered the zone of politics. I think so much of what we do is about culture, art, design, creative industries, and what we call soft power. So if we're able to do this as respectfully as we can, as consciously as we can, and my association, again, this is accidentally beautiful. My entry to universities and to education was never meant to be for that reason. But my position in education and around academia put me slightly bit in a credible position and post-COVID around this time. A lot of people have time to think about the value of their life in the last three years, you know, and realize life is not to be wasted. Stop doing lousy, junky, dirty profit-making projects. Find a good purpose. Find good reasons for your investment, for what you produce. So I think this is really also a special moment of consciousness in the world that is quite awakened. So we can see that, we can feel that from government parties. They want to do good projects. And the last three years have given a lot of people doubt of their previous high confidence because quite a lot of people are lost, including myself. And so this is a really good time to have great conversation. What kind of society we should develop, what kind of companies we want to build, and uh, how do we want to be for the public around us. To create change, you also have to be a little bit, in a positive sense, disruptive with new ideas and new perspectives completely. Do you feel there is receptiveness and openness for that? You are bringing us to a road that I sort of want to talk about. You know, I think the idea of permission to create. You know, a creative person, a great partner to a creative is somebody that gave them permission to create. And I think we are very lucky to be around this permission. And I think there's too many things in the center. And there are many people in the world that are studying the edge of things. And I think some of the great ideas is on the edge, not outside the box, but on the edge. There's also society that are open to new ideas. I think there are certain developing countries, and I used this 30 years ago, understanding different markets in Asia. I used two things to compare. I used to call, I used to think about closets and mines. And there are certain cities or countries that there are open mind and empty closets. That's the best combination. Empty closet means you can sell them things. You can bring in products, brands, services, because they are willing to buy. The most difficult ones are the full closets and the closed mind. They don't want to take in ideas and they have already been sold for so many years. They don't want to buy anymore. So they're not willing to buy any new thinking. So I always hope for a creative person to be facing or to be working in a market that is open mind and empty closet. Which such markets do you see? I mean, I'm sorry to be quite general. Japan is open mind and quite full closet. They have already been buying for many years. So I do not want to be in the luxury, in the position of selling in Japan because it would not be easy. But open minded because they are island mentality 
and they want to learn from the outside. China is going to be for a very long time open mind and empty closet because that top tier of the pyramid is forever continually going to be filled up because the first tier cities are already going up to that top of the pyramid. The second tier cities, the next 100 million people is going to go up to that market so that you will continuously have a market to sell. And hopefully we're in a position to always sell better things, to be fair, to be right to consumer, never sell junk. And so I think a place that I live and I find sometimes difficult is maybe Hong Kong. Hong Kong is close mind and also full closet. They already have luxury brand for the last 40 years. And the city is very much set up by the top 50 companies, 20 companies. And it is about real estate, banking, finance, and very little about culture. So I really hope that we could do something in Hong Kong to give alternatives to young people. All your life, you've been involved in different ways in creating change, actually, uh, good change. So what is your kind of lesson learned so far in terms of how is the best way to create really change and then also systems change? You know, I have to again say I'm blessed to have been trained in architecture, in design, in advertising, marketing, communication. So at my stage right now, I'm, what I'm actually doing is listen carefully to different situations and try to find the most beautiful way to position a company, a city government, a project or institution and try to find a way to position and tell the story that motivates me first, inspire me first, and hopefully it will do the same to a large number of people nearby. And that takes a little bit of conceptual copywriting, design, uh, thinking bigger plan, they're thinking about the bigger story and combine all these various different pieces together and how much education is in it, how much is it to, to develop the, the next generation of people within this, this system. And luckily, some of the projects and clients around me are very interested to hear this sort of a new thinking because I can position myself against an advertising agency because I have that background. But I will hopefully give something not in advertising language, not in advertising uh, system. I think I'm coming in really as a holistic way of bringing a company to as good a place as I know how, and also building a dream team around me to give the client or that situation the best service possible. And I think setting up that dream team is the most fun possible work. What are the different people, different minds that can accelerate an old paradigm? or an existing paradigm to inspire and to, to really move the leadership, let's say, of, of Project X. I want to present the sky to them. What is possible of their company, of their city, of what they've built, and let them dream along with me, with us, with my team, so that they really see, oh my God, I've never gone that far. I've never thought this is possible. And from that point on, if we can 
get to 70%, 60%, we're very satisfied. Because what I did is I showed them the whole menu. I showed them maybe too much, but saying this is what is available in the world. And this is what I think the future generation deserves to have. And if we are able to give them how much more industries, how much greater the population, how much we can push the universities to be better. So I'm, I'm quite satisfied with 50%, 60%, 70% of what we present. The idea of permission to create an edge, there's another way of looking at it. We start looking into this about eight years ago with a group of students from China in Korea. We went to Korea and we start exploring the idea, what if we change a small part of a big system? And we explore it with companies in Korea, but we also look at what exists in the world that are doing something like this. I think China does not have a 10% change thinking, but Shenzhen is many ways China's 1% change or 5% change is a city that give great permission to be freer, to do new things, to do daring things. And MIT has Media Lab. You know, Stanford has D-School. Even the company like IKEA has PS IKEA. So if we are able to allow a space for extraordinariness to happen within a big system, General Electric has an incredible small incubation group within General Electric. That allows people that are on the edge to work there. And I'll give one more example. Deloitte has a group called Center for the Edge. And it is it started in San Francisco. It's a very small team, a great team, to help companies to think out of the box so that they become one of the sexiest part of Deloitte. Samsung in USA, they do on a very regular systematic way, a 20% staff change on a continuous basis. So there's constantly new blood coming in 20% annually. It's also must be nerve wracking for people to think if I can keep my job or not, but it really keep that flow of innovation of new blood pumping. So I think um, that 10% change is somewhat within this philosophy. Can we bring in a small group to innovate a company? And on the business side, it's not so risky. The 100% of your customer can stay in the 90% of the space. That 10% is for your customer to realize your company is growing and is thinking about their children, is thinking about tomorrow. I'm thinking about the importance of having, you know, a, a vision or a dream, or it doesn't have to be like, you know, 20, 30 years from now. It can even be like five, 10 years from now. What is the future that you would like to see, let's say 20, 33 or something? And how does it look like there? And, and how does it feel like there in that space? And who's there? What's happening there? I'm really lost if we're talking about beyond two years because I think the world is changing at unimaginable speed. And um, what we have seen in just the last six months is unimaginable. I think people are concerned about jobs, but that also means people are going to be very concerned into being excellent, to be great, so they can stand out compared to AI. 
How is the discussions or dialogues going in terms of, as you mentioned, the generative AI and uh, the dilemma around AI, actually? A large part of my university, my university departments and, and the friends around me are working in that space, are exploring that space and learning and defining that space. And I watch closely, I, I learn together with them. But one part that I focus on, probably consistently on all my projects, is the humanism of things. Because I try to find the other part of the conversation. And too many people are going one way, are worried about one thing. Is there something else that we should balance out? So the word balance is really important. So I'm not very good to, to go with the mass. And um, I'm, I'm interested to find my niche, to find a place that unusual special group of people can be in. So um, just for an example, we curated a Biennale um, in Shenzhen, Hong Kong, end of last year, this year. And it is in a city of Shenzhen that is so much technology-driven, AI-driven, rapid prototyping-driven. I don't know if I told you this. Our theme was called Unplugged. <laughs> this is before I met you, Vesta. <laughs> and um, it is as much as possible the human ingenuity that we can present in a city. What are people doing incredible things with their hands, uh, with their artistry, with their craftsmanship, in the way they construct, in the way they use new material, in the way they do things that makes you happy. So we curated 38 artists to entirely dive into this area from 12 countries. And because I cannot compete, if we did a show on ChatGPT, or metaverse, it will be just competing with 10,000 projects happening at the same time. But by doing that, we are also making people realize this has also been valued, the ingenuity in people and things that are handmade, things that have double, triple meaning, depth of meanings. So this is a little bit maybe my way of dealing with the fast changing world is always not just only focusing on tomorrow, but also yesterday. So the voice of elders, the knowledge of elders, together with the knowledge of tomorrow. I think only a decade ago or something, we were much more inclined to feel safe because we were thinking whatever problems we have today or tomorrow will be resolved with innovation, with tech, with something, right? And today I feel that people are less inclined to believe that that's going to happen. It's more going back to, as you, you're mentioning, going back to some roots, to some kind of universal principles that are important, connected to our humanity, rather that that's going to take us in the right direction than, than anything else. Men and women, you know, when they look at beautiful things online or reading or, or experience on the streets, things that really touch them will put a, a tear or two in their eyes or inside of them. I don't think AI is able to do that. So how can we just really find ways to keep people's emotion, to really understand what really moves people and celebrate it? I'm thinking about the people who are listening to this. Many of them are leaders. What one piece of advice would you give to them in that role as leaders? What would that be? What does a company, a city, a leadership, what does it give to its um, audience? What is a gift to its staff? So the concept of giving. A great company, you almost can feel 
the personality of the ownership of the leaders behind it because of how it manifests itself. And I think that word humanism comes back again. How can we bring humanism into a corporation so that you touch people deep, you give them the best you can possibly give them, and always be one step ahead of people. Just like parents are one step before the children. Would they get hurt? Would they need this? Do they want this? Would this help them? You know, everything comes back to the people we serve. How can we be really good at it? And also, second is the city we are in. Because no matter what, you're serving the city you live in. You're serving the country you're operating in. So whatever we do, we're doing for the city that embodies us. What would you say the formula for being or becoming such an, a conscious, let's say, business? What is that? What's interesting in, in China for the last 20 years I've, I've been back is there's no religion. So what is the spirituality and what is, what is the higher being? And what who do we look up to? And I think there's something just simple, very simple. There's a beautiful Chinese word. There's a beautiful word in the world. But the Chinese writing is just poetic. It's the word good. The word good in Chinese is a woman and a child side by side, the writing. And because it is as basic as that, a uh, mother and child. And I think there are movies in the past where we've seen a lot of stories, a lot of books, you know, do the right thing. I think the idea is just goodness, plain, pure goodness. How can you just be satisfied, be happy with what you do every day, every decision that you make, be responsible. Doesn't have to be any sect, any religion, any belief, but just be simple, you know. And um, when I was young, I, there was a, I, I learned about conscious companies in the 80s in New York. And I remember the most visible one at that time was Esprit, and everything they did was just so right and so good. And slowly you start seeing global movements. We are the world, USA for Africa, you know, a lot of, a lot of things that is a little bit more selfless, a little bit for the greater of all. And I was always wondering if, because I see only so many advertising agency and design companies, and I was like, imagine if a company that just help companies to be good, what a great company, what a great agency it would be. And I think it'll be amazing to have chief good officer, CGO in a company. It's not about uh, corporate social responsibility, individual responsibility, but just how do we be as good as we can on the planet that we are for the time that we are here and bring our one million customers along with us, you know, so that they feel the goodness when they're using, wearing the product. Richard, what do you think the world needs most at this time? I know it's a big question. It's the idea of balance. It's about top of the pyramid and bottom of the pyramid. It's about have and have-nots. It's about the whole concept of duality, the opposites, the rich, the poor, the privileged, and the underprivileged. And I've always wondered how nice if we have a system to constantly average it out a little bit, you know? And I'm working on a project in China now with a few friends that has elders, a help home, as well as kindergarten. It basically goes from age three, four, all the way to 90 years old. 
and we're looking at various different ways. And, and of course, within the system, also have kindergarten, uh, high school, and education. But how do we find a way to bridge, for example, elder people's home with orphanage? They both need each other. So how can we develop that that kind of flow of system so that it is not an American system, Chinese system? It is just a basic plus and minus for both sides of black and white. It'd be beautiful if if there's a convergence, a little bit more of a convergence. And we know a lot of companies are doing it. And a friend of mine did small projects, you know, a book club that's called Twins. You buy a book and automatically the same book is sent to the underprivileged community and two books can communicate to each other. So let's say a student in the city, a student in a village, and the student in the village knows that he gets the book because somebody just bought it in the city. And they can communicate what they have learned, who they are with each other. So that kind of constant pairing, you know, it's the most basic pairing of a man and woman, pairing of yin and yang, of uh, what I don't have, what you have. So if we're able to develop a system like that in so much of business, and we know that about shoes, and this is this is 1980s, 90s, Kenneth Cole. You bring your old shoes, they'll be repaired and given to underprivileged people and get 30% off your new shoes. So Tom's shoes, you know, so, so are there more and more, and also Wabi eyeglasses, you know, when you buy a pair of eyeglasses, another set of eyeglasses is given to children who need eyeglasses and cannot afford them. So imagine our whole world becomes that, you know, and beautiful Italian system 100 years ago called suspended coffee. <laughs> you know, you buy two, three extra coffees for the next people who need it, who cannot pay for it. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, be it's beautiful. Dreamy, idealistic idealism. <laughs> yeah, but, but dreamy, but also very concrete and powerful when they manifest uh, in real life. And it, and it works, as you say, because it... it it touches the the soul of, of us as people, you know. We want to be helpful and we want to do good. So why don't we just use that in a good sense in every way we can? So Richard, initially I wanted to ask you about what is your true passion, uh, that thing that drives you in your life that you're also willing to suffer for if needed. And I think from all our discussions that we've had somehow, I would guess that it's very much some kind of bridging. You're doing this bridging, as you say, with the balancing act of, of bridging the best of both sides and, and creating something new. I don't know if I'm on the, on the right track, but you tell me. Yeah, I think those are the certain things that make me super happy to be able to introduce my friends to other friends, to be able to put certain things together that, that should be together, that they have been destined to be together. But <laughs> somebody had to put them together. Yeah, I'm I'm very much like that too. And and I think I think that's that's also very much sort of ecosystem builder or community uh, builder. I think ideas move me and and um and I always I, I tell this to some of my students, I you know, it's it's a silly thing to say, but how often can you be moved to tears in a day? Try to maximize that. Try to make certain things happen that you can feel so good that there's a tear inside of you. Or look out for great thinking, great projects, great ideas, great expressions. 
that makes you really feel deep. I, I cannot think that is right for marketing because if every if every brand, every company tear jerk people, that's not the right way either. <laughs> but but I mean, really go out and touch someone. I think that will be my advice to leaders. Go out and touch your customers. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. Thanks for sharing everything. Really, it was profound and really, truly valuable for us to understand more also of the reality you're living in in this stage of your life. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for sharing. And for people to find out more, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Thanks for listening to the show. And to make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. So I'm Vesta Luca and you've been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.